Hope Church. Glad to see uh, each and every one of you here today. Um, it's an exciting morning for many reasons, but one important reason is we start a new study through the book of Matthew this morning, Matthew chapter 1. So if you want to go ahead and turn there and you'll be ready, um, that'll, be, that'll be great. Um, a lot of good stuff happening um, in the church right now. I know this week uh, many seeds um, have been planted, um, and I just want to encourage us this morning that we all um, draw close to the Lord, allow God to draw close to us, so that our desire to participate in His mission uh, would increase, um, that our love for Jesus would compel us uh, to be part of His mission. And so let's pray, and we'll get into it this morning. So, Heavenly Father, we come to you now. We thank you for your love. We thank you for your goodness. We thank you that you did not leave us um, alone in our sin, but that you sent your Son, Jesus, to rescue us from sin and all its penalties. And Jesus, we thank you that you loved us enough to go to the cross for us and to suffer in our place so that we could have life and life eternal with you. As we see this morning in your word that you are with us, and so we thank you for that reality, and we pray that we would live in the experience of that reality day by day. In your name, Jesus, we ask these things and ask you to teach us by your Holy Spirit. In your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. So as we begin our study um, in the book of Matthew, I want to take a couple of minutes just um, in terms of, of introduction. Um, the Gospel of Matthew, uh, written by Matthew, um, we believe around um, 50 AD. Um, he is a disciple of Jesus. He did not start off as someone who was extremely concerned about matters of eternity and of following God. He was a tax collector. Um, he was, you know, he would be deemed by or uh, by other uh, Jewish people as a traitor um, to the nation, uh, working employed by the government, the Roman government. Um, and so we can see in this that uh, Jesus reached him in a powerful way, and that it radically changed his life. Um, and I think that we should expect this when people come to know Jesus. We should expect a radical change in life. Even if the person you know, has grown up in the church their whole life, they've grown up around people who follow God their whole life, when God really grabs hold of a person, and that person really grabs hold of God and the things of God, we should expect that to result in a, in a radical life that is centered around Jesus Christ. It's no longer centered around that specific person and their own dreams and desires, but it's then become centered around Jesus and who he is and his mission. Um, we should expect to see that, regardless of the situation, um, uh, the circumstances of the per person coming to know Jesus in the first place. Um, we would still expect a, a radically different life from the life that is lived without Jesus. That should be the expectation. Um, so the theme of the book, as we'll see throughout, throughout is that Jesus is the true king. Um, in the, we have the introduction in the first three chapters, the introduction of the king um, in chapters four through seven, 
and these are you know approximate breakdowns. I'm not giving you specific by verse, but in chapters four through seven, the king's first um, declarations and commands. Um, chapters eight through eleven, the proof of the king's power and authority. Chapters twelve through fifteen, the challenge to the king's authority. Chapter sixteen through twenty, the building up of the king's disciples. Chapters twenty-one through twenty-seven, the fulfillment of the king's first coming, um, as as prophesied in the Old Testament. And chapter twenty-eight, the confirmation of the king's life and ministry. And also in chapter eight, the final command um, to make disciples of the king in every place. And so it really does have to do with the authority of Jesus. You know, yes, as Savior and as King. Um, we should note that because Matthew has you know this this theme concerning Jesus, he is less concerned with the specific order of events. Um, he's more um, concerned about what the historical events tell us about his theme. Um, so he's not looking to give a strict you know chronological order of the life of Jesus, even though some things are in chronological chronological order, many things are not. Um, because he has organized his material according to his themes. Okay, that's more true in the center um, of the book. Um, we'll see that his audience is um, to convince unbelieving Jewish people, like he once was, that Jesus is the Messiah. Uh, he makes about forty direct quotes of the Old Testament, and he makes about another seventy references to Old Testament things. He also wants to encourage his readers um, who are believers to be faithful to their Savior and King. Um, and Matthew is also very careful not to leave out the rest of the world. Um, we'll see that throughout the book of, of the interactions of Jesus uh, with Gentile um, people. That Matthew has a concern for that because he, he knows that because Jesus is indeed the King of the universe, that this message of Jesus is for the entire world. And so he wants to be very careful that there's no mistake about that throughout. And we even see that uh, here in chapter 1. So in chapter 1, we have the beginning of it is the genealogy, the record of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. That's verse 1, the record of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So we have to remember that for the audience of Matthew, the, you know, the genealogy is very important. Um, you know, for the Jewish people, you know, genealogy matters a lot more than in many other um, cultures. You know, for myself, you know, I know that my ancestors, you know, that on my father's side, that many of them came from Scotland. Uh, we know some names, but in terms of like practical everyday reality, if you say, Chet, who are your ancestors? You know, I don't, I can't go back very many generations and I am stuck. Because I, I just don't know, um, you know. But you know, for for these people, especially in I mean, even today, but especially in these times, you know, they can go back generation, 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 because who your ancestors are in this culture is extremely important, and it's important because God made certain promises that went along those lines of you know descendants, and so you know, there's a reason it was important. It wasn't just like you know, just randomly important to them. It was, it was important for, for a reason, concerning, especially concerning the prophecies that were given about the Messiah. 
And so Matthew gets straight to the point in verse 1 uh, when he's claiming that Jesus is, you know, the Christ, the anointed one, you know, the king. It's, a, it's you know, to refer to the kingship of Jesus, of Jesus Christ. You know, this, Jesus is from um, the Hebrew word Joshua, or Yeshua, um, meaning Savior, Christ, the anointed one, um, king. So when he says at the very beginning, it's really interesting because he says the son of David, the son of Abraham. And, and, you know, he puts that in that order because he really wants to establish the kingship of Jesus. You know, you, you might have thought, if you, you know, not knowing his theme, that if he was going to start the book, he would start off with Abraham, you know, and, and then refer to King David. But, no, he puts King David first because he wants to show that Jesus is the rightful heir of the throne of David and that it's the eternal throne that God had promised. And so that's his first main you know, point, the son of David, then the son of Abraham. Um, and so he wants to, us to really to know that. Now, as we go through these names, we're not going to take much time this morning uh, to talk about individual characters. Um, we're going to start our study this week, tonight, and on Thursday night in our house fellowships on the book of Hebrews. And some of the key characters, you know, we'll go into much more depth. Um, of their lives then um, we'll mention a couple here um, but just we're going to just mostly just read these um, as we go through so verse 2 of Matthew chapter 1 Abraham was the father of Isaac Isaac the father of Jacob and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar Perez was the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram. Ram was the father of Amenadab. Amenadab was the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon. Salmon was the father of Boaz by Rahab. Boaz was the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse. Jesse was the father of David the king. David was the father of Solomon by Bathsheba, who had been the wife of Uriah. Solomon was the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, and Abijah, the father of Asa. Asa was the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram, and Joram, the father of Uzziah. Uzziah was the father of Jotham, Jotham, the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah was the father of Manasseh, Manasseh, the father of Ammon, and Ammon, the father of Josiah. Josiah became the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. So now... Um, we also want to just make a quick reference that Matthew is establishing Jesus' right to the throne of David through the line of his, of his earthly caretaker, Joseph, um, who is his, you know, not his biological father, but has, in some senses, you know, adopted, you know, Jesus as a true, you know, son, as his own. Um, and we'll talk about that more in a minute as we continue through chapter one. Uh, but it's in, but I do want to make a note here um, of some of the people that Matthew includes. He includes, um, you know, four women. And in the genealogical record, this isn't um, exactly necessary. And, and, you know, knowing the Old Testament and the Old Testament stories, his reader would have known, you know, the, who these women were, even if he doesn't put them in here. Um, but he puts them in specifically, I believe, to remind them of a couple of things. And he does it you know, for a, for a reason. So think about the four women that he does include. He doesn't include all the wives or many of the wives, but he includes four, um, four women. Tamar, um, who had prostituted herself. Um, and that's, 
um, how uh, some folks came to be in this line. Ruth was a foreigner. Um, Sorry, let me go back to the second one. Rahab was a Gentile and a prostitute. Ruth was a Gentile, a foreigner. And Bathsheba um, had committed adultery. Um, So of the four women, um, three of them had a pile of sin and one was an outsider. Now, I want to say with that, that, you know, Matthew is obviously not just picking on these these women um, in in any way. If you piled up the sins of all the men in the list that are even recorded in the scripture, um, you know, the, the women have like a hill and the men have like Mount Everest. You know, that's kind of the, um, you know, if you were to, to do it that way. Um, so he's not, he's not doing it for that reason um, to embarrass anyone, but he wants to show um, their importance in the Old Testament history. I think he wants to reduce... Um, the national pride of his audience a little bit um, because you know they view themselves as the good people they view themselves as the good people um, and I, and I think we even find this today when it comes to sharing the the good news of Jesus people good news of Jesus with people sometimes the hardest people to reach are those who think that they are good people you know when a person knows that they are a sinner they know that they're far from God. They know that they're lost. They tend to be accepting of that reality, and they're open to hearing about you know, potential solutions to that. But when a person thinks they're just a good person, and you say, well, you need God, it's kind of like, well, well why? You know, I'm a good person. And so I think Matthew here is working on his audience to take away a bit of this idea that you know, they're good people. Um, Demir and Ingrid were, were sharing Jesus with uh, someone last, last night in their house, and uh, one of the illustrations they, they used is to show that we're sinners. Say, okay, if you committed two sins per day, that's 730 sins a year. Over the course of 10 years, that's 7,300 sins. At two sins a day. That's a pile of sin. At five sins a day in 10 years, you're at 18,250 sins. You know, and so at that point, you know, it's like you ask somebody, well, how many sins do you think you commit a day? And just do the math on that and say, okay, do you think you're not a sinner then? Like you're just a great person? You know, on your own? You know, apart from God? Uh, you know, and, and, and I think that that's um, what Matthew is doing here. He's kind of showing the people, hey, we're, we, we need this Messiah. We need this Savior and King because we are sinful people. We are lost apart from God. Um, I think it's also for another reason, and that's to show that God's ultimate plan is not dependent on the goodness of people or, or even their obedience. That God's ultimate plans are going to be brought forward. Because we know that in, you know, in God's will is for people not to sin. God doesn't want people to sin. And nothing in God's plan is dependent on people sinning. You know, it's, it, it's not like we don't have the story if David doesn't commit murder and adultery. But despite that, despite the things that King David and many others had done throughout the history, 
God's ultimate plan still come forward. Jesus is still going to come. The Messiah will still come. The Messiah will still reign. Ultimately, God is going to establish his kingdom in all of its fullness and all of its glory. So then the question becomes, not is God's plan going to happen, but how do we participate in his plan? And also, by saying no to sin, we get to participate in his plan more fully, and we get to avoid many of the pains that come along with sin. You know, sin results in trouble. Sin results in pains. Sin results in bad consequences. So, of course, we should avoid that. You know, we don't read this and go, well, it's obvious here that God's going to still have his glory shown so we can do whatever we want. No, that's the, that's the wrong way to read the scripture. The way to read it is to see the power of God that despite all the sinfulness of humanity, God's ultimate plans will still be brought um, to reality. Because we know that, that in the end, that Jesus, the, he is king over everything, but the fullness of that um, will be shown. And that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord, that he is the king. Like That's the ultimate end of it all. But there is that deal, you know, in, in who and under what circumstances, you know, how, really what circumstances are people bowing that knee. Um, and, and obviously, it's better to do so out of a loving and joyful and forgiven heart uh, than out of necessity to acknowledge you know, the reality when Jesus is shown in all of his glory. So now let's go to verse 12, where it says, After the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah became the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abidhud, and Abidhud the father of Elikim, and Elikim the father of Azor, and Azor was the father of Zadok, Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Ehud, Eliud, and Eliud was the father of Eleazar, Eleazar the father of Methan, Methan the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, by whom Jesus was born, who was called the Messiah. So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. From David to the deportation um, to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Messiah, 14 generations. So here Matthew has accomplished his goal to show this lineage, this line um, from Jesus uh, to King David and also, you know, to Abraham. And, and that part with Abraham is also important because that fits into his theme that Jesus, you know, is the king uh, for all the nations. You know, and the, and the, the promises um, to Abraham are fulfilled in Jesus that in his seed all the families of the earth will be blessed. Um, every last one. So that's to go with the promise fulfillment and it also has to go with the end of the chapter with his, you know, the proclamation of his mission that we would take the good news of Jesus to all the families of the earth. And so, from beginning to end, uh, what we see, what, Matthew's a great writer, and he, he's gonna, he ties everything you know, together. Um, if you read the first chapter and the last chapter, you know, it's all tied in um, together. Um, so, we have this about the deportation to Babylon. Um, and because of the sins of the people of Israel, they were judged, and they, many of them were removed. Um, 
you know, from there, and, and you know, we have many things in the history of Israel in the Old Testament to study. Um, and I think that one of the reasons that this is here, there's two reasons. One, uh, it's an important part of the history of the nation of Israel, and with it uh, brings the hope and expectation of a king to reign in justice. We have to remember, too, at this time, um, you know, some are scattered throughout, some Jewish people, you know, are still scattered throughout the world. Well, many are. Um, some are in Israel, but they're in an occupied, you know, land. The Romans, um, you know, have authority over them and had so for, at this point, you know, over 100 years. Um, and so there's this expectation still that the people have, uh, but it's, it's definitely at this point a nationalistic expectation that it's just for the nation, a king that will free them from Roman oppression and so that they can then be the ones to rule over the other nations around them. This is their, their hope, you know, their dream um, for their own liberty, their own self-determination, you know, all of, all of these things. Um, and so, uh, you know, we have, at the same time as, as it's in this line of Jesus with a deportation, um, we're going to see some things, uh, I think even next week, having to do with... Uh, you know, Jesus having to go down to, to Egypt for safety and then returning. Um, those things are important. Uh, but that, it, that this whole thing isn't going to be easy. You know, I think one of the, the issues that the people had in not accepting Jesus is they expected, you know, everything to be in, in power and to come quickly and suddenly. Um, and yet their whole story is one that's not an easy story. And the life of their Messiah is also going to resemble that. He's, you know, his, his story is not an easy story. He's not born into luxury. He's not born into ease. He's not born into you know, a family that has great power. Um, no, he's born into a lowly place. And many things in his life are going to be difficult. He is going to suffer. Just as a nation had suffered, he is going to suffer. Um, and we need to remember this because ultimately for us who are followers of Jesus, the goal of God is to make us more like Jesus. And Jesus, even in his humanity, had to go through difficult things. He had to go through suffering. And so we do people a great disservice when we give them this notion that if they follow God, their life is just going to be you know, peaches and cream. It's going to be all easy. Um, and... You know, they're going to have more money than they had before, and they're going to have better health than they had before, and they're going to have more friends than they had before, and they're going to have all these things. You know, um, and, and for some people, those sorts of things do happen, but that's not the point. Um, it's never the point. Um, you know, God is, is concerned about us becoming more like Jesus. That is, you know, that is what his desire is for us. And so, therefore, we have to endure some things that are difficult in our lives. Uh, and I think the earlier that we can come to accept that, you know, the better. I've, I've met many people in my, you know, really the reality is, you know, in my, in my Facebook, I have a, there's a collection of people that I, I witness um, disillusioned with God, so troubled you know, with their lives because of the hard things they've endured because the gospel that was preached to them was a gospel of ease. A gospel of an easy life. 
that this is why you follow God so you can have an easier life is ultimately the message that many have received. Um, and then, you know, they say, okay, I'm going to follow God. And then life gets hard. They go, wait, you know, none of this is real. It's like, no, God is real. Jesus is real. Just what was communicated with you and what you wanted to believe, even, is it reality? And so what you wanted to believe in reality, when those don't match, there comes with that, you know, a disillusion, you know, perspective. There comes a frustration. There comes an anger. Um, and so people need to uh, be told the truth. Yeah, I think we need to be careful that we tell the truth when we're sharing Jesus with people. Um, no, your life will not necessarily become easier. Now, it is true that when somebody is, um, you know, just, just, they have so much sin in their life, uh, parts of their life becomes easier when they become followers of Jesus and they say no to those sins. Okay, we do recognize that. You know, that's a reality. You know, somebody may have more money when they stop spending their money on, you know, vices, things that are terrible for their lives, and they start putting that money to good use. They may end up actually with more money. That might be just a, you know, a, a great benefit of having followed Jesus. But where people make the mistake is where they take those certain you know, benefits and make that the point of following Jesus. You know, that's a great mistake. It's a tremendous mistake. We need to make sure that we don't make it and that you know, when we see people hearing that gospel, we say, whoa, whoa, whoa. That's not really the gospel. You know, the gospel is the kingdom of Jesus and us participating in that you know, as, his, as his disciples, as his followers. Um, so now let's read uh, verses um, 18 through 25. It says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for we will save his people from their sins." Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. And Joseph awoke from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took Mary as his wife, but kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Now, let's remember this scene. Um... To be Joseph in this situation, you know, he's betrothed, which is engagement only a lot stronger. I mean, this is a binding arrangement. It's a, it's a, it's a, uh, you know, something culturally, once you did this, you were like really, really obligated. Um, and the only way out really is somebody's unfaithfulness. Um, and this is what it appears to Joseph has happened. You know, he realizes, you know, and she probably tells him, you know, she's pregnant. She's with child. Now, can you imagine that conversation? That first conversation is like, you know, she says she's pregnant. 
he's like, how did this, you know, happen? Like, you might like wondering who this other dude, you know, who is this other dude? And, and you know, he might be looking for a fight, you know. Um, and she's like, no, I didn't sleep with anybody. I mean, he's like, I like you and everything, but you might be a little bit off your rocker. You know, because that just doesn't happen. You know, like, you know, th- there's some, some real math that needs to go on in this, you know, where one month one equals two, you know, sort of thing. It's like, come on now. Come on. What sort of, I mean, you got to think, like, what sort of sucker do you think I am? But he's a really good dude. I mean, you see this. You see this in the back. I mean, he is a really good dude because he does not want to. It says he's a righteous man. He respects God. He fears God. And he does not want to disgrace her. Where many dudes would have been like, hey, I want everybody to know what she did to me and how she broke her promise. And she should be an outcast. And especially in this culture this time, I mean, that would be worthy of being an outcast in society. So he has, he has opportunity, and in terms of human terms, justification to ruin her reputation, to ruin her life. He doesn't do it. His idea is, we'll just make this, we're just going to keep this as a quiet thing. That tells you a lot about the character of Joseph. And I think why he was selected to be you know, the one to be with Mary and to be, you know, the, the earthly caretaker, you know, father of Jesus. Because his character was worthy of it. Her character was worthy of it, as we see throughout, you know, the scriptures. But his is, was as well. He's a solid dude. You know, he's, he's someone that could be looked to um, as, a, as a great example, you know, for us. Um, but thankfully, um, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, and it took something miraculous to get Joseph on board, you know, with this, because he's not just taking her word for it, you know. I don't think, um, but it, but God, in His great grace and mercy, lets him know she's telling the truth. As crazy as it sounds, she's telling the truth. Joseph, notice this, son of David. Back to that line for the kingship. Um, Do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. The child has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit, and she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Um, You know, that's powerful, you know, meaning Savior. um, And that's ultimately what he does name her. And it says this, for he will save his people from their sins. Now, that's really interesting because he doesn't say, you know, as his priority, he's going to save his people from the oppression of the Romans, you know, or for other, you know, physical things. But no, he's going to save the people from their spiritual condition that they are separated from God because of their sins. He's going to be their savior and he's going to save them from their sins. He's going to do so much, something so much greater than just you know, free them from Roman oppression. He's going to save them from a, an eternal, eternal spiritual oppression. 
Now it says, all of this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Quote, behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. It's from Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. So this had been prophesied about 600 and some years beforehand. Um, and it happens here. It takes place. Um, and they call his, shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. Um, but before we, we get into that part about where we say God uh, with us, you know, when we talk about the miraculous nature of the virgin birth, you know, uh, there are a lot of people who say, well, I just can't believe something like that. I can't believe something like that. And I think it comes down to ultimately um, what do you believe God is capable of and not capable of? Yeah, that's the bigger question. Yeah, I think when somebody has that issue, they're hung up on a specific thing. Like, I can't believe this story in the Bible, like that it happened the way it says here. I think the bigger question is, well, if there if there is a God who is almighty, he is all-powerful, he knows everything, is there anything that he cannot do within, his, within what he has made? Because it comes down to a bigger issue of faith. Because if the answer is, well, there's things, I don't know if there's God, or there's things I, I, I can't believe God would do, well, of course, then at that point, the whole thing sounds fictitious. But once you've established that God can do anything that he wants to do, well, what isn't on the table anymore? You know, the only parameters are the parameters which God has placed on himself. And he has placed certain parameters on himself in terms of his own morality, of his own ethics. You know, he says things like he, he doesn't lie. You know, those are, those are restraints he has put on himself. Now, depiction of many other gods um, throughout you know, the, the, um, the universe, the world, is that these guys can change their mind and they can do things that aren't always, you know, good or whatever. But we have a God who is always holy, perfect, and just. That is how he defines, you know, himself. So those are the parameters. But outside of that, he, he can do what he wants to do. And I think that that's pretty obvious when we look at the reality, um, the complexity of the created world. You know, we're going to have a solar eclipse tomorrow. Who set that in motion? You know, that's, that's not something we, any, any human, has the power to control or to change. You know, and yet, in the grand scheme of the universe, it's a pretty small thing. When you think about the billions of stars and all, I mean, all the galaxies, and you talk about, you know, just look up, if you want to have a little fun, when you think about how immense the universe is, just look up how long the known universe what scientists believe okay we know we believe this is here and this is here at the speed of light how long it takes you to get from one side to the other just look that up on just google that later today and let your mind get blown a little bit um that that's how great our creator is and the one who can make all of that then we can have a virgin birth we can have a sinless human being Jesus Christ, fully God and fully man. You can have a crucifixion where, where he dies for our sins, and you can have a resurrection where the grave cannot hold him. 
But once you take off the table an all-powerful, almighty God, well then, it does indeed all sound fictitious. Like You, know, you have to kind of have that as a starting like basis. But the, the problem for those who say, well, I don't believe in the almighty, all, you know, an almighty, all-powerful God, and so therefore I don't believe the rest of the story, then the question is, well, what then do you believe? That what then are your answers for how we got here and why we're here and our purpose? And what are your answers for why do we have any sort of morality or ethics? And we need to be very clear and understanding that this does affect actually how we live everyday life and and the implications in our world are tremendous and if you take people that do not have do not believe in God and set out to show that there is no God if you take a person like Charles Darwin you will not find a bigger racist It'd be hard-pressed to find a bigger racist than Charles Darwin. He believed that evolution is why we're different, and they're superior, and there's inferior, and eventually the superior will wipe out the inferior. His writings on that are crystal clear. And so, you know, this is a problem even in our schools, because our schools, you know, in our public schools, you know, we want to teach all the kids that there isn't a God, and you're hereby random chance and that there's this you know evolutionary process and then at the same time they want to tell everybody but you have you know we should all be kind to one another and that we're all of equal value the question then is on what basis and the only way they come come to the conclusion of any sort of equal value is the influence of the scriptures whether they believe it, you know, how they know they came to believe it or not, the only way that they came to believe that is through the influence of what is written in the scriptures. Because that's not, that's the antithesis of Darwinism. The idea that, that we all have equal value is the antithesis of Darwinism. You take, you know, people like Margaret Sanger. There's a Sanger Award, supposedly, like for the. It's, I mean, it's the most ironic thing in the world that there's an award for her that's supposed to be given to people who are doing like humanitarian things. When she was all about eugenics and genetic selection and eliminating certain races, and yet her name would be lifted up as like a champion of freedom, and that's the twistedness. You know that's that's the twist and, and the wickedness in our in our world today. So you know, as we as a nation right now are facing these issues in a very you know real ways, and and people are needing to have important conversations, we need to be very clear on what basis we believe that we're, we have we're equals. On what basis do we believe that as human beings? And we believe it because God told us so. That God told us that he created us in his image all the way back in Genesis chapter 1. That's how fundamental and how important it is. Very first chapter. Very first part. One chapter when originally written, but the very first part. You cannot get 
you know, five minutes in of reading. You can't even get three minutes in with reading before you get to we're made in the image of God. That we all have the same first parents. We're made in the image of God. You get a you get a half hour, forty five minutes in to your reading, and you have God's promise through Abraham that all the families of the earth will be blessed. You have Jesus, you know, you have John three sixteen, for God so loved the world. You have the commands of Jesus to go and make disciples of all the people groups, all the all the ethnicities, all the families of the earth, basically, is what he's saying. Fulfill that promise given to Abraham. So this is our basis, and, and, and the reality, what we have to acknowledge, and what I think we can rightfully point out, is that those who do not believe in the God of the Scriptures do not have a basis. It's purely subjective. They do not have a basis for saying that there is equality. In fact, what they are saying is in exact opposition to the other things that they believe about how we got here. They're completely inconsistent. And, you know, we can only be thankful that there's been enough influence in our nation concerning the scriptures that we are equal, even whether people acknowledge whether, you know, why they think that way or not. We can only be thankful that that thought has been implanted enough that there's not complete and utter chaos today. Because the logical outcome of survival of the fittest is survival of the fittest. And whoever can put themselves in a certain place at a certain point in time to use to have power and to exercise it. So we need to be very, very clear in that conversation as we use it even as an opportunity to share a bigger picture of God's love for, for each person on what basis do we have this? What basis do we hold these truths to be self-evident? Scripture. God's word tells us so. You know, and that's one thing that, I, that I'm so thankful for in our scriptures. We don't have to go back and change our scriptures to allow... You know, a new group in once that's become socially acceptable to do so, to allow a new ethnicity in. Now, our scriptures are consistent from Genesis to Revelation. As we see in the book of Revelation around the throne of God, people from every tribe and every tongue and every nation <coughs> worshiping the King of Kings. Our nation, our world needs more churches that reflect that reality that we see in the book of Revelation, particularly in places that are cosmopolitan. Now, you know, we're in the mountains in, in Mexico, um, and it's one people group that's there, and there really aren't people outside of that people group that live there. We can't hold them to that and say, well, you need to be a church that reflects, you know, what we see in the book of Revelation with everybody from every tribe and tongue and nation around the throne of God. You, don't, you need to be a church that reflects that. Well, that's not realistic. That's not who the people are that are there. But in Athens, Georgia... We better reflect that. I'm, I'm thankful that we reflect that more than we used to. Prayer is that we reflect that more and more. Because our nation, our city, our nation needs 
those prophetic voices an example. And to, be, to, to see that witness. You know, Jesus said, you will, they will know you are my disciples by your love for one another. And so what we want to do is go much further than just have people of different you know, backgrounds, different ethnicities that tolerate each other. You know, word tolerance. I mean, you talk about a low ball, bar. Well, I'm going to tolerate you? You're going to tolerate me? I mean, if that's the best we can do, that's just sad. That's just sad, this tolerance. But we want to do much more than just be people who can be in the same place at the same time without conflict. We want to be brothers and sisters who love each other deeply, who would die for one another. Like, that's our standard in Jesus. Greater love has no one this than he lays down his life for his friends. Like, that's our standard. The world standard is tolerance. I mean, that's like barely above the floor. Like, you got to lift your foot up like a quarter of an inch to get above that bar. I mean, that is ridiculous. But the standard of Jesus is that you would die. You would physically, literally die for your friends. And who are your friends? They will know you are my disciples by your love for one another. You know, and I and I think that you know, as far as being a local church goes, that that's really a question for us. Between that, you know, where that tolerance is down there for the other people in the room, that tolerance there, there, and, and like I would die way up here. Like, how do you feel about the other people in the room? And, and that lets us know where the level of love is in the church. That lets us know where the level of love is. And so we want that to be closer and closer to reality. I would die for you. Like, that's the standard that Jesus gives us. You know, and we see throughout the scriptures, I think one of the things I'm most excited about as we go through the book of Matthew is that we see clearly, um, especially in the first seven chapters, what Jesus expects of us. Like how he expects us to live in this world. It's not pie in the sky. It's not the- theoretical. It's reality. Here are his expectations for his followers. This is what he wants from us. Now we come to a really, really quick reality. We can't do that without, without Jesus. But here's the promise. God with us. Emmanuel, God with us. He is with us. And because he is with us, we can follow him. We can walk with him. And it's interesting how that's at the very beginning of the book and the very last thing in the book. And lo, I am with you always, even until the end of the age. See, Matthew being a master writer, putting it all together, of course, he's got the help, (laughs) you know, the Holy Spirit writing this, but it's still really beautiful and powerful for us. It all comes together. From chapter 1 to chapter 28, God is with us. And so if He is with us, then we can, with boldness and with, with great love, be on mission with Him. He is with us. 
And that should give you a confidence. That should give us all a confidence to be about his mission to strive hard to make disciples. To do so intentionally you know, with love and with boldness. We need to be those people who are having those Jesus conversations with others. If we don't have them, who do we expect to have them? Who's gonna, I mean, yes, there are other believers in our city who are doing the Lord's work. There's no doubt. But, but here's my question. You know, we, we're, we're a church where we say, you know, we teach book by book. Where we say, you know, we're serious about the things of God. We want to be in his presence. You know, at the beginning of the year, you know, and hopefully still is, you know, our thrust. We want to be, God, we want to be in your presence. We want to know you in your word. We want to know it all, but we, will also, we want to experience it. We want to experience your presence. We want to be with you. We want you to be with us. We want to walk with you day by day. Like, this is our heart. And we want to see you work, God, in our city and in our world. And we want people who, you know, were in darkness to be in light. We, we want there to be peace. You know, we want to we want to be part of some of the people who are, are peacemakers. That we are bringing, you know, reconciliation. We are bringing good news. And so, with the fact that Jesus is with us, should give us great confidence in that day by day. And I think we each have to ask ourselves because I have to be to be transparent and say, you know, there's times where I, I'm I just don't got it. That's terrible English. <laughs> Sorry for everybody trying to learn English this morning, but just don't got it. <laughs> so, you know that in those in those times we have to go before the Lord and say, Lord, change my heart, make me more like You, conform me to Your image, conform me to Yourself. You are my Savior. You are my King. You know, but day by day, you know, around each one of us, when I look in this room, I see wonderful people who love Jesus. You know, I, I, I see people who love Jesus. I see people who have made sacrifices. I see people who have, who are doing God's work, you know, who, and who want to do God's work more. You know, that there is a desire, you know, for it, for it and for us. And so my encouragement this morning is more and more. You know, that we would love God more. And that would result in us loving people more. Which results in more intentionality, more sacrifice. More and more. You know, because when I, when I see in this room is the potential for so many lives, for so many lives to be affected, for so many seeds to be planted. And, you know, we're, I'm not about, like, you know, promising results, but I, I think reality is the scripture does. You know, at the end, there's good fruit. How much of it you get to see in your lifetime? You know, I, I don't necessarily want to venture to say all of that. But I think the scripture is clear that what we sow, we reap. You know, in terms of a spiritual harvest. 
And so putting you know, the scripture into people's hands, sharing the good news of Jesus you know, with more and more people, um, it's for their benefit and it's for our benefit. And it draws us closer to our Savior. What we can't afford to have happen is that our knowledge of God, our knowledge of the gospel, our, even our own experience with God is kept to ourselves. Like, we just don't see that in the scriptures. Like, that's, that's got to be unleashed and released to other people around us. And so I'm gonna, I want to throw out a challenge, you know, this week. And if you're, I mean, if you take the challenge, praise God. If you don't take the challenge, we'll pray that God will just give you more desire to take this sort of challenge. But my, the challenge is, this week, share the gospel of Jesus Christ clearly with someone you don't know and someone you do know. Two people. To share the gospel of Jesus clearly with one person you know, one person you don't know. And I think we make this like this mammoth thing. And I don't want to make it this big, huge thing, you know, this morning. I want to make that like, that's just part of our, our life as followers of Jesus. It's just normal that we would want to talk about our Savior, that we want to talk about our King. And that we just simply can ask people, it's, I mean, it's almost easier with the person you don't know than the person you do know. But, you know, just, what's your story? Share your story with me, please. And Listen. And like nine times out of ten, you're going to get an opportunity through that to share your story. And that person will listen to you. It's not really that complicated. And in, when you're telling your story, to be clear that, it, that Jesus is the center of that story and he's the one who's changed your life. You know, and, you, and you're inviting that person to enter into not your story, but the story of Jesus. Because it's not about us. We use our story to point people to Jesus, and then we want people to enter into the story of Jesus, because he's the one who is the really, really important one. We're, we're pequeño, we're little, tiny. But even in that being little and tiny, we're still blessed beyond measure to be called people who are the children of God, to be part of God's family and to have a part of, at his table. So God has actually made us more than tidy. He's made us kings and priests to him. And we get to celebrate that today. We get to take that bread and we get to take that cup and see that what Jesus did on the cross has done everything for us. And I pray that as we, even as we take that, that God gives us a passion to, to live a radical life to where we want to share his love with everybody and that we wouldn't be ashamed to do so and we'd be willing to, to have the awkwardness have the uncomfortableness of some things we'd be willing to do that because man what people need is Jesus you know and, and if that's the best that we have don't we want to share that you know with other people I was, I was joking when I was down in Mexico you know I've been going down there a good number of years and the first, this, uh, this is the first time we go to this restaurant. They have rotisserie chicken places all over the place. And, you know, I've eaten that. And they're, they're delicious. But, you know, I've eaten that, a, you know, a hundred times there. Maybe more. 
And this was the first time in this restaurant they ordered one with this cacahuate salsa, which is a, a peanut-based salsa. It's like peanuts and serrano peppers and garlic, and it is off the chain, incredibly delicious. And I take the first bite of it, and I'm like, really? I've been coming here for 15 years, and this is the first time I have this. This is like, in the top three or four, best things I've eat, ever eaten here. And this is the first time having it. Where are my friends? You know, I was joking with them. Like, where are my friends? You know, to, that you haven't shared this delicious cacahuete salsa with me yet. That's just a peanut-based salsa. I mean, ultimately. Okay, it changed my chicken life. It, it did change how I view chicken just in general. But it's a small, tiny part of life, right? It's a small, little thing. It's a small, little thing. Compared to, I mean, how wonderful and how awesome Jesus is. You know, and the idea that we would withhold that from anyone. I don't want to be too harsh, but I mean, it's almost criminal. That we would know people and not share Jesus with them. I mean, it's almost criminal. Because Jesus is so great. And if we love people, we want them to have the best that we have. Jesus told us, love God with everything we have, love our neighbor as we love ourselves. Well, can I, can I imagine my life without God? Can I imagine my life without Jesus? That's a pretty terrible thing to imagine. So, of course, I want to share that love and that goodness with others. And so that's the challenge for this week because I believe that our church should be full of people of all sorts and different types who are, are coming to know Jesus or have come to know Jesus through the testimony of the people in this church and through God using the people of this church to accomplish that purpose. And I'm just going to tell you, people are open. I mean, just Friday and Saturday, the, the number of different types of people and the conversations that have been had, like people are open. People are open to have these conversations about Jesus. They are wide open. And, and let me tell I mean, and I'm, I'm talking like more than half of people are wide open. I believe that. But if only one out of ten was wide open, I mean, take it. Take it. But people are wide. I'm just telling you, I've got stories that I want to share, but we'll be here the rest of this afternoon. People are open to have these conversations. It's a lie from the pit of hell that says people aren't open to have the conversation. That's the only thing, the only purpose of that law is to keep you from talking about Jesus to other people. That's a lie from the pit of hell. Don't believe it. People are open to have those conversations. Take it. Seize it. Because God will use your lives. God will use our lives for his mission because he is with us and we're on mission with him. We talked even earlier in the summer about that wave and being on the surfboard and waiting for the wave. I'm, I'm just going to tell you all that wave is here. We've got an option whether we're going to ride it or not, but that wave is here. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you now and we ask that you would be with us 
We're thankful we don't even really have to ask that, God, uh, because you've promised us that you are. Help us to know it. Help us to experience it. Help us to live for you. Help us to be bold in our faith. We acknowledge, Jesus, that you are Savior and that you are King and that because of you we have everything that we need to do good in this world for others. Help us to share your love and your grace. Help us to be people who listen to others so we earn that opportunity, God. Help us to be humble. And Lord, please remove our selfishness from us. Please remove our fears from us. Please remove our sin from us. Please remove everything that hinders us from being people who are just radiating you day by day. God, for your glory, for the honor of your name, we ask that you would do it by the power of your Holy Spirit and that it would be a work of you that no one can deny. So that you would receive all the glory and honor and praise. We give it all to you, dear God. We thank you in your precious name, dear Jesus. We thank you that you went to the cross for us, that we can take that bread and that cup this morning because you did go to the cross for us. God, help us to know that no matter our personalities, no matter how shy we are, you can still use each one of us. That, Lord, each one of us can make a difference in the lives of other people. So give us your love for you, God. Fill us with your love, with love for you and fill us with love for our neighbors, our neighbors from every place. In your name, Jesus, we ask it.